Hello and welcome, friends, family, and of course, enemies alike, to episode 144 of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson. Now, throughout this week, we are continuing through The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. In the last chapter, Gatsby has formally met Tom at one of Gatsby's parties one weekend as Daisy and Tom attend. Tom is still unaware of the secret relationship that is occurring between Daisy and Gatsby. However, we have been slowly sensing that Daisy is getting a little anxious over keeping their relationship a secret. And Gatsby is starting to get more bold with his dealings with Daisy, and so proper measures need to be taken. Gatsby must go to the Buchanan household. So this week, we begin a rather long chapter with Chapter 7, Part 1, split up into three parts, as we listen in through Nick's eyes as to how Gatsby and Daisy are going to navigate their secret relationship, and their intentions to the master of the household, Mr. Tom Buchanan himself. So without further ado, The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Chapter 7, Part 1. Content Warning. The following reading contains mild profanity. It was when curiosity about Gatsby was at its highest that the lights in his house failed to go on one Saturday night. And as obscurely as it had begun, his career as Tremalchio was over. Only gradually did I become aware that the automobiles which turned expectantly into his drive stayed for just a minute and then drove sulkily away. Wondering if he were sick, I went over to find out. An unfamiliar butler with a villainous face squinted at me suspiciously from the door. Is Mr. Gatsby sick? Nope. After a pause, he added, Sir, in a dilatory, grudging way. I hadn't seen him around, and I was rather worried. Tell him Mr. Carraway came over. Who? He demanded rudely. Carraway. Carraway. All right, I'll tell him. Abruptly, he slammed the door. My Finn informed me that Gatsby had dismissed every servant in his house a week ago and replaced them with half a dozen others who never went into West Egg Village to be bribed by the tradesmen, but ordered moderate supplies over the telephone. The grocery boy reported that the kitchen looked like a pigsty, and the general opinion in the village was that the new people weren't servants at all. Next day, Gadsby called me on the phone. Going away? I inquired. No, old sport. I hear you fired all your servants. I wanted somebody who wouldn't gossip. Daisy's coming over quite often, in the afternoons. So, the whole carvansary has fallen in like a card house at the disapproval in her eyes. There's some people Wolfsheim wanted to do something for. They're all brothers and sisters. They used to run a small hotel. I see. He was calling up at Daisy's request, 
Would I come to lunch at her house tomorrow? Miss Baker would be there. Half an hour later, Daisy herself telephoned and seemed relieved to find that I was coming. Something was up. And yet, I couldn't believe that they would choose this occasion for a scene. Especially for the rather harrowing scene that Gatsby had outlined in the garden. The next day was broiling. Almost the last, certainly the warmest, of the summer. As my train emerged from the tunnel into sunlight, only the hot whistles of the National Biscuit Company broke the simmering hush at noon. The straw seats of the car hovered on the edge of combustion. The woman next to me perspired delicately for a while into a white shirtwaist, and then, as her newspaper dampened under her fingers, lapsed despairingly into deep heat with a desolate cry. Her pocketbook slapped to the floor. Oh my, she gasped. I picked it up with a weary bend and handed it back to her, holding it at arm's length and by the extreme tip of the corners to indicate that I had no designs upon it. But everyone nearby, including the woman, suspected me just the same. Hot, said the conductor to familiar faces. Some weather. Hot? 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 Is it hot enough for you? Is it hot? Is it... My commutation ticket came back to me with a dark stain from his hand. That anyone should care in this heat whose flushed lips he kissed, whose head made damp the pajama pocket over his heart. Through the hall of the Buchanan's house blew a faint wind, carrying the sound of the telephone bell out to Gadsby and me as we waited at the door. The master's body? roared the butler into the mouthpiece. I'm sorry, madam. We cannot furnish it. It's far too hot to touch this noon. What he really said was, Yes? Yes. I'll see. He set down the receiver and came toward us, glistening slightly, to take our stiff straw hats. Madam expects you in the salon, he cried, needlessly indicating the direction. In this heat, every extra gesture was an affront to the common store of life. The room, shadowed well with awnings, was dark and cool. Daisy and Jordan lay upon an enormous couch, like silver idols weighing down their own white dresses against the singing breeze of the fans. We can't move, they said together. Jordan's fingers, powdered white over their tan, rested for a moment in mine. And Mr. Thomas Buchanan, the athlete? I inquired. Simultaneously, I heard his voice, gruff, muffled, husky, at the hall telephone. Gadsby stood in the center of the crimson carpet and gazed around with fascinated eyes. Daisy watched him and laughed, her sweet, exciting laugh. A tiny gust of powder rose from her bosom into the air. The rumor is, whispered Jordan, that that's Tom's girl on the telephone. We were silent. The voice in the hall rose high with annoyance. Very well, then. I won't sell you the car at all. I'm under no obligations to you at all. 
And as for your bothering me about it at lunchtime, I won't stand that at all. Holding down the receiver, said Daisy cynically. No, he's not, I assured her. It's a bona fide deal. I happen to know about it. Tom flung open the door, blocked out its space for a moment with his thick body, and hurried into the room. Mr. Gadsby! He put out his broad, flat hand with well-concealed dislike. I'm glad to see you, sir. Nick? Make us a cold drink, cried Daisy. As he left the room again, she got up and went over to Gadsby and pulled his face down, kissing him on the mouth. You know I love you, she murmured. You forget, there's a lady present, said Jordan. Daisy looked around doubtfully. You kiss Nick too? What a low, vulgar girl. I don't care, cried Daisy, and began to clog on the brick fireplace. Then she remembered the heat and sat down guiltily on the couch, just as a freshly laundered nurse, leading a little girl, came into the room. Blessed precious, she crooned, holding out her arms. Come to your own mother that loves you. The child, relinquished by the nurse, rushed across the room and rooted shyly into her mother's dress. The blessed precious... Did mother get powder on your old yellowy hair? Stand up now and say, how did he do? Gadsby and I, in turn, leaned down and took the small reluctant hand. Afterward, he kept looking at the child with surprise. I don't think he had ever really believed its existence before. I got dressed before luncheon, said the child, turning eagerly to Daisy. That's because your mother wanted to show you off. Her face bent into the single wrinkle of the small white neck. You dream, you. You absolute little dream. Yes, admitted the child calmly. Aunt Jordan's got on a white dress, too. How do you like your mother's friends? Daisy turned her around so that she faced Gadsby. Do you think they're pretty? Where's Daddy? She doesn't look like her father, explained Daisy. She looks like me. She's got my hair and the shape of the face. Daisy sat back upon the couch. The nurse took a step forward and held out her hand. Come, Pammy. Goodbye, sweetheart. With a reluctant backward glance, the well-disciplined child held to her nurse's hand and was pulled out the door, just as Tom came back, preceding four gin rickies that clicked full of ice. Gatsby took up his drink. They certainly look cool, he said with visible tension. We drank in long, greedy swallows. I read somewhere that the sun's getting hotter every year, said Tom genially. It seems that pretty soon the Earth's going to fall into the sun, or... Wait a minute. It's just the opposite. The sun's getting colder every year. Come outside, he suggested to Gadsby. 
I'd like you to have a look at the place. I went with them out onto the veranda. On the green sound, stagnant in the heat, one small sail crawled slowly toward the fresher sea. Gatsby's eyes followed it momentarily. He raised his hand and pointed across the bay. I'm right across from you. So you are. Our eyes lifted over the rose beds and the hot lawn and the weedy refuse of the dog days along shore. Slowly, the white wings of the boat moved up against the blue, cool limit of the sky. Ahead lay the scalloped ocean and the abounding Blessed Isles. There's sport for you, said Tom, nodding. I'd like to be out there with him for about an hour. <laughs> we had luncheon in the dining room, darkened too against the heat, and drank down nervous gaiety with the cold ale. What'll we do with ourselves this afternoon? cried Daisy. And the day after that, and the next thirty years. Don't be morbid, Jordan said. Life starts all over again when it gets crisp in the fall. But it's so hot, insisted Daisy on the verge of tears. And everything's so confused. Let's all go to town. Her voice struggled on through the heat, beating against it, molding it senseless into forms. I've heard of making a garage out of a stable, Tom was saying to Gatsby, but I'm the first man who ever made a stable out of a garage. Who wants to go to town? demanded Daisy insistently. Gadsby's eyes floated toward her. Ah! she cried. You look so cool. Their eyes met, and they stared together at each other, alone in space. With an effort, she glanced down at the table. You always look so cool, she repeated. She had told him that she loved him, and Tom Buchanan saw. He was astounded. His mouth opened a little, and he looked at Gatsby, and then back at Daisy as if he had just recognized her as someone he knew a long time ago. You resemble the advertisement of the man, she went on innocently. You know, the advertisement of the man. All right, broke in Tom quickly. I'm perfectly willing to go to town. Come on, we're all going to town. He got up his eyes still flashing between Gatsby and his wife. No one moved. Come on! His temper cracked a little. What's the matter, anyhow? If we're going to town, let's start. His hand, trembling with his effort at self-control, bore to his lips the last of his glass of ale. Daisy's voice got us to our feet and out onto the blazing gravel drive. Are we just going to go? She objected. Like this? Aren't we going to let anyone smoke a cigarette first? Everyone smoked all through lunch. Oh, let's have fun. She begged him. It's too hot to fuss. He didn't answer. Have it your own way, she said. Come on, Jordan. They went upstairs to get ready while we three men stood there, 
shuffling the hot pebbles with our feet. A silver curve of the moon hovered already in the western sky. Gadsby started to speak, changed his mind, but not before Tom wheeled and faced him expectantly. Have you, uh, have you got your stables here? Asked Gadsby with an effort. About a quarter of a mile down the road. Oh. A pause. I don't see the idea of going to town, broke out Tom savagely. Women get these notions in their heads. Shall we take anything to drink? Called Daisy from an upper window. I'll get some whiskey, answered Tom. He went inside. Gadsby turned to me rigidly. I can't say anything in this household sport. She's got an indiscreet voice, I remarked. It's full of... I hesitated. Her voice is full of money, he said suddenly. That was it. I never understood before. It was full of money. That was the inexhaustible charm that rose and fell in it. The jingle of it. The simple song of it. High in a white palace, the king's daughter. The golden girl. Tom came out of the house, wrapping a quart bottle in a towel, followed by Daisy and Jordan, wearing small tight hats of metallic cloth and carrying light capes over their arms. Shall we all go in my car? Suggested Gatsby. He felt the hot green leather of the seat. I ought to have left it in the shade. Is it standard shift? Demanded Tom. Yes. Well, you take my coupe and let me drive your car to town. The suggestion was distasteful to Gatsby. I don't think there's much gas, he objected. Plenty of gas, said Tom boisterously. He looked at the gauge. And if it runs out, I can stop at a drugstore. You can buy anything at a drugstore nowadays. A pause followed this apparently pointless remark. Daisy looked at Tom frowning, and an indefinable expression, at once definitely unfamiliar and vaguely recognizable, as if I had only heard it described in words, passed over Gatsby's face. Come on, Daisy, said Tom, pressing her with his hand toward Gatsby's car. I'll take you in this circus wagon. He opened the door, but she moved out from the circle of his arm. You take Nick and Jordan. We'll follow you in the coop. She walked close to Gatsby, touching his coat with her hand. Jordan and Tom and I got in the front seat of Gadsby's car. Tom pushed the unfamiliar gears tentatively, and we shot off into the oppressive heat, leaving them out of sight behind. Did you see that? demanded Tom. See what? He looked at me keenly, realizing that Jordan and I must have known all along. You think I'm pretty dumb, don't you? he suggested. Perhaps I am, but I have a, almost a second sight, sometimes, that tells me what to do. Maybe you don't believe that, but science... He paused. The immediate contingency overtook him, 
pulled him back from the edge of theoretical abyss. I've made a small investigation of this fellow, he continued. I could have gone deeper if I'd known... Do you mean you've been to a medium? inquired Jordan humorously. What? Confused, he stared at us as we laughed. A medium? About Gadsby. About Gadsby? No, I haven't. I said I'd been making a small investigation of his past. And you found he was an Oxford man, said Jordan helpfully. An Oxford man? <laughs> he was incredulous. Like hell he is. He wears a pink suit. Nevertheless, he's an Oxford man. Oxford, New Mexico, maybe, snorted Tom contemptuously. Or something like that. Listen, Tom, if you're such a snob, why did you invite him to lunch? Demanded Jordan crossly. Daisy invited him. She knew him before we were married. God knows where. We were all irritable now with the fading ale, and aware of it, we drove for a while in silence. Then, as Dr. T.J. Eckelberg's faded eyes came into sight down the road, I remembered Gadsby's caution about gasoline. We've got enough to get us to town, said Tom. But there's a garage right here, objected Jordan. I don't want to get stalled in this baking heat. Tom threw on both brakes impatiently, and we slid to an abrupt, dusty stop under Wilson's sign. After a moment, the proprietor emerged from the interior of his establishment and gazed hollowed-eyed at the car. Let's have some gas, cried Tom roughly. What do you think we stopped for? To admire the view? I'm sick said Wilson, without moving. Been sick all day. What's the matter? I'm all run down. Well, shall I help myself? Demanded Tom. You sounded well enough on the phone. With an effort, Wilson left the shade and support of the doorway, and, breathing hard, unscrewed the cap of the tank. In the sunlight, his face was green. I didn't mean to interrupt your lunch, he said, but I, I need money pretty bad, and, and I was wondering what you were going to do with your old car. How do you like this one? inquired Tom. I bought it last week. It's a nice yellow one, said Wilson as he strained at the handle. Like to buy it? Big chance, Wilson smiled faintly. No but I could make some money on the other. What do you want money for all of a sudden? I've been here too long. I want to get away. My wife and I want to go west. Your wife does? exclaimed Tom, startled. She's been talking about it for ten years. He rested for a moment against the pump, shading his eyes. And now? She's going whether she wants to or not. I'm going to get her away. The coupe flashed by us with a flurry of dust and the flash of a waving hand. What do I owe you? demanded Tom harshly. 
I just got wised up to something funny the last two days, remarked Wilson. That's why I want to get away. That's why I've been bothering you about the car. What do I owe you? Dollar twenty. The relentless beating heat was beginning to confuse me, and I had a bad moment there before I realized that so far, his suspicions hadn't alighted on Tom. He had discovered that Myrtle had some sort of life apart from him in another world, and the shock had made him physically sick. I stared at him, and then at Tom, who had made a parallel discovery less than an hour before, and it occurred to me that there was no difference between men, in intelligence or race, so profound as the difference between the sick and the well. Wilson was so sick that he looked guilty, unforgivably guilty, as if he had just got some poor girl with child. I'll let you have that car, said Tom. I'll send it over tomorrow afternoon. That locality was always vaguely disquieting, even in the broad glare of afternoon. And now I turned my head as though I had been warned of something behind. Over the ash heaps, the giant eyes of Dr. T.J. Eckelberg kept their vigil, but I perceived, after a moment, that other eyes were regarding us with peculiar intensity from less than twenty feet away. In one of the windows over the garage, the curtains had been moved aside a little, and Myrtle Wilson was peering down at the car. So engrossed was she that she had no consciousness of being observed, and one emotion after another crept into her face like objects into a slowly developing picture. Her expression was curiously familiar. It was an expression I'd often seen on women's faces, but on Myrtle Wilson's face it seemed purposeless and inexplicable until I realized that her eyes, wide with jealous terror, were fixed not on Tom, but on Jordan Baker, whom she took to be his wife. End of Chapter 7, Part 1 of The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. <sighs> the nerve of that woman. I mean, the audacity of Daisy Buchanan to be having an open affair with Gatsby under her own roof with her husband on the phone one room over having a conversation with Wilson whose wife Tom is having an affair with that is an interesting marriage to dissect if I may say so but I digress because I know that Nick does an excellent job of painting Tom as a villain. He absolutely eviscerates him, as he should. Tom is a terrible man, terrible husband, terrible father. But one thing I will say is that Daisy also has no shame in their relationship. They fit like two peas in a pod, because after she has able to express her affection towards Gatsby, in comes bounding young Pammy to go see her mother. And Daisy's like, Oh, look, look at my friends. Hint, hint, look at Gadsby. Isn't he handsome? 
Wouldn't he make a great father? And Pammy, bless her heart, says to her mother, Where's Daddy? Oof, that had to sting. But I don't think it stung to Daisy as much as it did Gatsby when he realizes his whole facade, I don't know if that's the right word, smashes to smithereens. You can hear the glass tinkering to the floor as he realizes that Daisy wasn't using a child as an excuse to engage in a full-on relationship with him and divorce her husband, who she's clearly in an unhappy marriage with. No, 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 no. This child is indeed real. And Gatsby has to come to terms and grips with this fact. And he, he, uh, he puts a pin on it. And I think he comes back to logical earth at this point in his time. You know, he's like, you know, he's stuck in La La Land with Daisy for so long. And he's like, I can't pick up this relationship from five years ago like it was yesterday. There was a lot that has changed. And I think what I'm attracted to is how Daisy's voice just reeks of money. That's what I want. Because in fact, which is funny, is Gatsby himself is clawing his way into his own fortune that he's been unsuccessfully trying to put up a, a his own facade, you know, with his fake books and his lavish parties and all of these things that he puts to show Daisy, hey, I'm a marketable man. I've got money, since that's the most important thing and foundational in any marriage relationship. And so Daisy is struck by that, but he's like, she's got genuinely real money. And that's what I'm truly attracted to in this situation scenario. But at this point, I don't know what's going through Gatsby's mind, but Tom himself is like, okay, so I know that this relationship is happening. Daisy has so much as admitted that fact. I'm going to assert my dominance. Do you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna drive Gatsby's car to Manhattan tonight. I'm not going to take my own car. I'm going to take Gadsby's. What a power move, young sir. What a power move. You know, I don't know if this is like an East Egg thing or if this is just like a Tom and Jealous, you know, exerting dominance thing where he's just like, I'm going to take his car. <laughs> he almost successfully sells it to Wilson, in fact. But then we've got Wilson. After he finds out that his wife is having an affair with he doesn't know who, it actually turns him physically ill. And he, it's almost like Nick observes like a, a guilty illness. Like, he's like, what did I do to deserve this? Uh, was I too, too controlling? Was, uh, was I not loving enough? And poor Wilson, probably not a saint himself, but at least he was trying. But sadly for him, his wife was also had daisy fever and wanted all of the money that she could have. And instead, all he had to offer up was a measly garage where he flips cars for a living and fills up people's cars with gasoline. 
$1.20? Are you kidding me? But I digress before I go down that rabbit trail. I feel like, because they said that they were going to move west. This is my final thought. Here's, here's my conspiracy theory, okay? Uh, just in broad general forms. They're going to escape their problems, Wilson and Myrtle, by moving west. That's where they want to go. And I feel like this is where all of America's problems start, you know? They start in the eastern seaboard side. And the people over there are like, I can't fix my problems here. You know, they're in like the New Yorky area type of place. And they're like, I can't fix my problems here. I gotta, I gotta start a new life. I gotta wreck more people's lives. You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start a trailblazing path. I'm gonna move to the Midwest. Yes, those people are a little too nice. We've got to make them a little bit more gruff and unhappy. And they kind of go through like a Midwest filter. I mean, the, the Midwestern, you know, charm kind of wears off on them a little bit. And the lucky ones are able to be overcome and incensed by such wonderful charm that we here in the Midwest can have. It is hypnotizing. However, those who are not wooed by our good graces pick up full steam and momentum as they travel and then all of a sudden they hit the Rockies and they're like, I'm not going back. And they just kind of rain down on Washington, Oregon, and California. And hence, the eastern side's problems are now the western side's problems by a property of transference. So there you go. But speaking about hypnotism, next week we are going to finish the casebook of Sherlock Holmes' most recent case entitled The Adventure of the Illustrious Client, where Holmes is off to cracking a case where there is a woman who the man who is she is under control of claims that he has hypnotized her. And she is non-suggestible against anybody trying to convince her otherwise that her husband is whatever the reverse of a black widow is for men. And so... That is what we will be concluding with next week in that case. So thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson. And as they say in showbiz, for now, that's all he wrote.